This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marion Brown, Toronto, Canada. The Trimmed Lamp by O. Henry. Chapter 12 The Social Triangle. At the stroke of six, Ikey Snigglefritz laid down his goose. Ikey was a tailor's apprentice. Are there tailor's apprentices nowadays? At any rate, Ikey toiled and snipped and basted and pressed and patched and sponged all day in the steamy fetter of a tailor shop. But when work was done, Ikey hitched his wagon to such stars as his firmament let shine. It was Saturday night, and the boss laid twelve begrimed and begrudged dollars in his hand. Ikey dabbled discreetly in water, donned coat, hat, and collar, with its frazzled tie and chalcedony pin, and set forth in pursuit of his ideals. For each of us, when our day's work is done, must seek our ideal, whether it be love or pinochle or lobster a la Newburgh, or the sweet silence of the musty bookshelves. Behold Ikey as he ambles up the street beneath the roaring L, between the rows of reeking sweatshops, pallid, stooping, insignificant, squalid, doomed to exist forever in penury of body and mind, yet as he swings his cheap cane and projects the noisome inhalations from his cigarette, you perceive that he nurtures in his narrow bosom the basilisks of society." Ikey's legs carried him to and into that famous place of entertainment known as the Café McGuinness, famous because it was the rendezvous of Billy McMahon, the greatest man, the most wonderful man, Ikey thought, that the world had ever produced. Billy McMahon was the district leader. Upon him the tiger purred, and his hand held manna to scatter. Now as Ikey entered, McMahon stood flushed and triumphant and mighty, the centre of a huazing concourse of his lieutenants and constituents. It seems there had been an election. A signal victory had been won. The city had been swept back into line by a resistless besom of ballots. Ikey slunk along the bar and gazed, breath quickened at his idol. How magnificent was Billy McMahon, with his great, smooth, laughing face, his grey eye shrewd as a chicken-hawk's, his diamond ring, his voice like a bugle-call, his prince's air, his plump and active roll of money, his clarion call to friend and comrade. Oh, what a king of men he was! How he obscured his lieutenants, though they themselves loomed large and serious, blue of chin and important of mane, with hands buried deep in the pockets of their short overcoats. But Billy, oh, what small avail are words to paint for you, his glory is seen by Ikey Snigglefritz. The Café McGuinness rang to the note of victory. The white-coated bartenders threw themselves feetfully upon bottle, cork, and glass. From a score of clear Havanas, the air received its paradox of clouds. The leal and hopeful shook Billy McMahon's hand, and there was born suddenly in the worshipful soul of Ikey Snigglefritz, an audacious, thrilling impulse. He stepped forward into the little cleared space in which majesty moved and held out his hand. Billy McMahon grasped it unhesitatingly, shook it and smiled. Made mad now by the gods who were about to destroy him, Ikey threw away his scabbard and charged upon Olympus. 
"'Have a drink with me, Billy,' he said familiarly. "'You and your friends.' "'Don't mind if I do, old man,' said the great leader, "'just to keep the ball rolling.' The last spark of Ikey's reason fled. "'Wine,' he called to the bartender, waving a trembling hand. The corks of three bottles were drawn. The champagne bubbled in the long row of glasses set upon the bar. Billy McMahon took his and nodded, with a beaming smile at Ikey. The lieutenants and satellites took theirs and growled, "'Here's to you.' Ikey took his nectar in delirium. All drank. Ikey threw his week's wages in a crumpled roll upon the bar. "'Cracked,' said the bartender, smoothing the twelve one-dollar notes. The crowd surged around Billy McMahon again. Someone was telling how Brannigan fixed him over in the eleventh. Ikey leaned against the bar a while, then went out. He went down Hester Street and up Christie and down Delancey to where he lived, and there his womenfolk, a bibulous mother and three dingy sisters, pounced upon him for his wages, and at his confession they shrieked and objurgated him in the pithy rhetoric of the locality. But even as they plucked at him and struck him, Ikey remained in his ecstatic trance of joy. His head was in the clouds. The star was drawing his wagon. Compared with what he had achieved, the loss of wages and the bray of women's tongues were slight affairs. He had shaken the hand of Billy McMahon. Billy McMahon had a wife, and upon her visiting cards was engraved the name Mrs. William Darug McMahon. There was a certain vexation attendant upon these cards, for, small as they were, they were houses in which they could not be inserted. Billy McMahon was a dictator in politics, a four-walled tower in business, a mogul dreaded, loved, and obeyed among his own people. He was growing rich. The daily papers had a dozen men on his trail to chronicle his every word of wisdom. He had been honoured in caricature, holding the tiger cringing in leash. But the heart of Billy was sometimes sore within him. There was a race of men from which he stood apart, but that he viewed with the eyes of Moses looking over into the promised land. He too had ideals, even as had Ikey Snigglefritz, and sometimes, hopeless of attaining them, his own solid success was as dust and ashes in his mouth. And Mrs. William Darug McMahon wore a look of discontent upon her plump but pretty face, and the very rustle of her silks seemed a sigh. There was a brave and conspicuous assemblage in the dining saloon of a noted hostelry where fashion loves to display her charms. At one table sat Billy McMahon and his wife. Mostly silent they were, but the accessories they enjoyed little needed the endorsement of speech. Mrs. McMahon's diamonds were outshone by few in the room. The waiter bore the costliest brands of wine to their table. In evening dress, with an expression of gloom upon his smooth and massive countenance, you would look in vain for a more striking figure than Billy's. Four tables away sat alone a tall, slender man, about thirty, with thoughtful, melancholy eyes, a Van Dyke beard, and peculiarly white, thin hands. He was dining on filet mignon, dry toast, and opalinerous. That man was Cortland Van Doykink, a man worth eighty millions, who inherited and held a sacred seat in the exclusive inner circle of society. Billy McMahon spoke to no one around him, because he knew no one. Van Doykink kept his eyes on his plate, because he knew that everyone present was hungry to catch his. 
he could bestow knighthood and prestige by a nod, and he was chary of creating too extensive nobility. And then Billy McMahon conceived and accomplished the most startling and audacious act of his life. He rose deliberately and walked over to Cortland Van Doykink's table and held out his hand. "'Say, Mr. Van Doykink,' he said, "'I've heard you was talking about starting some reforms among the poor people down in my district. I'm McMahon, you know. Say, now, if that's straight, it, I'll do all I can do to help you. And what I say goes in that neck of the woods, don't it? Oh, say, I rather guess it does.' Van Doykink's rather somber eyes lighted up. He rose to his lank height and grasped Billy McMahon's hand. "'Thank you, Mr. McMahon,' he said in his deep, serious tones. "'I've been thinking of doing some work of that sort. I shall be glad of your assistance. It pleases me to have become acquainted with you.' Billy walked back to his seat. His shoulder was tingling from the accolade bestowed by royalty. A hundred eyes were now turned upon him in envy and new admiration. Mrs. William Derrick McMahon trembled with ecstasy, so that her diamonds smote the eye almost with pain. And now it was apparent that at many tables there were those who suddenly remembered that they enjoyed Mr. McMahon's acquaintance. He saw smiles and bows about him. He became enveloped in an aura of dizzy greatness. His campaign coolness deserted him. "'Wine for that gang,' he commanded the waiter, pointing with his finger. "'Wine over there!' Wine to those three gents by the green bush. Tell em it's on me, damn it. Wine for everybody. The waiter ventured to whisper that it was perhaps inexpedient to carry out the order, in consideration of the dignity of the house and its custom. All right, said Billy. If it's against the rules, I wonder if it twould do to send my friend Van Doykink a bottle. No? Well, it'll flow all right at the cafe tonight just the same. It'll be rubber boots for anybody who comes in there any time up to 2 a.m. Billy McMahon was happy. He had shaken the hand of Cortland Van Doykink. The big, pale gray auto with its shining metal work looked out of place moving slowly among the push carts and trash heaps on the lower east side. So did Cortland Van Doykink with his aristocratic face and white thin hands as he steered carefully between the groups of ragged scurrying youngsters in the street, and so did Miss Constance Schuyler, with her dim ascetic beauty seated at his side. Oh, Cortland, she breathed, isn't it sad that human beings have to live in such wretchedness and poverty? And you, how noble it is of you to think of them, to give your time and money to improve their condition. Van Doyking turned his solemn eyes upon her. It is little, he said sadly, that I can do. The question is a large one and belongs to society, but even individual effort is not thrown away. Look, Constance, on this street I have arranged to build soup kitchens where no one who is hungry will be turned away, and down this other street are the old buildings that I shall cause to be torn down, and there erect others in place of those death traps of fire and disease. Down Delancey slowly crept the pale grey auto. Away from it toddled coveys of wandering, tangled-haired, barefooted, unwashed children. It stopped before a crazy brick structure, foul and awry. Van Duking alighted to examine, at a better perspective, one of the leaning walls. Down the steps of the building came a young man, who seemed to epitomize its degradation, squalor, and infelicity. A narrow-chested, pale, unsavory young man, puffing at a cigarette. 
Obeying a sudden impulse, Van Doyking stepped out and warmly grasped the hand of what seemed to him a living rebuke. "'I want to know you people,' he said sincerely. "'I'm going to help you as much as I can. Shall we be friends?' As the auto crept carefully away, Cortland Van Doyking felt an unaccustomed glow in his heart. He was near to being a happy man. He had shaken the hand of Ikey Snigglefritz. End of the social triangle.